So one of the things I asked uh, on the break was because uh, I was talking to Chris about is there anything that you want me to make sure that I cover because of this, you know, we have four hours and uh, Buddhist recovery is such a actually endless conversation to some degree is that uh, talking about how uh, the Eightfold Path, which someone just brought up, how is the Eightfold Path congruent to uh, the 12 Steps, for example? Uh, so I'll, I'll talk about that because I think that's a really important uh, conversation. Um, and so uh, where to begin? So uh, if, you, if you were to sit down with the Buddha and, and ask him, what should I do? What was the Buddha's recommendation for us as human beings to be happy and to live a, a life of flourishing and well-being? Uh, he actually would, would, would instruct you to cultivate the Eightfold Path. Uh, is really the kind of, is what the Buddhist endeavor really is, which does actually uh, encompass uh, meditation. But it's not all that we're being asked to do, actually, in, in the Eightfold Path, or really in the Buddhist endeavor. Um, so when we look at the, um, the standard lists of, quote, of like the Buddhist teachings, one of the, one of the ones that I think is probably, probably the most well-known is that of the Four Noble Truths. And unfortunately, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are in the same list. So it can be a little bit confusing because there's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. But the Fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Path. Which I've always found to be a little confusing and actually sometimes hard to teach. So when we... Uh, and so the other thing that's, I think, a little bit of a bummer is there's lots and lots and lots of books written on the Four Noble Truths. But there's hardly any books on the Eightfold Path. In fact, there's only one that I know of for sure, which was written by a Buddhist monk named Bhikkhu Bodhi. It's a great book. But it's interesting, there's thousands and thousands of books written on Buddhism. And if you were asked the Buddha what to do, he would tell you to cultivate the Eightfold Path. Why we chose to not write a book on that is insane to me. So just to give you a quick, uh, some of you are probably familiar with it, but it's really quite simple, is that uh, the way that the Buddha talks about the Four Noble Truths is they're not really like noble truths, like capital N, capital T, although that's the way they've come down, is they're, they're not injunctions to believe in. He's not saying you should believe in these truths as in they're true with a capital T. Uh, he's actually asking you to do something. So they're actually really meant to be tasks. If you're interested in really learning more about this, Stephen Batchelor is really the person who's knocked it out of the park with this whole thing. Uh, and so the, 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 what we're being asked to do is, is to embrace dukkha, that, that life is hard, period. And that because life is hard, uh, we react. And so this is actually what addiction is. Because there's pain, because there's dissatisfaction, because there's loss, because there's hardship built into the fabric of existence, what happens is in the moment of that difficulty, what arises is tanha or craving. So what happens is when we come into contact with that which is unwanted or disagreeable, we react to it. We want it to be different. We want it to go away. And if we develop a strategy or we develop a behavior that makes it go away, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do it again. We're going to be the little rat in the cage with the sugar water going bang, 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 bang. <laughs> right? And, that, and, and that's just how it is. So we're being able to understand that 
Things are difficult, things are hard. We don't always get what we want. Sometimes we get what we don't want. Having a mind, having a body, having an emotion. Being a human being is inherently difficult. And there's an innate imperfection built into the whole system programming. And because of that, we react. And because of that reactivity, we, we suffer. So what we're being able to do is to recognize it and to not react, which is why mindfulness is so important, which is why it's so important to develop this recovered moment of being uh, at present and at ease, being homeostatic with the conditions that arise. And if I can do that, I'm recovering. And then in that moment, I'm having this third noble truth experience, which is uh, the letting go, the moving beyond of reactivity. I'm no longer in a state of reactivity. And in that moment, when I'm in a state of non-reactivity, what arises is the opportunity to cultivate a lifestyle based on that moment. A lifestyle rooted in non-reactivity. And then what arises out of that is for us is the right view. So right view, uh, samaditi in Pali, which is translated something as more like complete view or complete understanding. We want to have a complete understanding of what's going on. We want to have a complete understanding of the limitations and the possibilities of our human experience. We need to understand where we're limited and what our possibilities are, and that develops this sort of right view. Now, in the arena of Buddhist recovery, or the way that the, the, the four truths have been sort of, I would, dare, I would have to say sloppily interpreted in the refuge book, um, is, you know, and I think this part of it is important, it's, for many of us, it's understanding that, like, the abstinence aspect, that if we want to do this thing, we have to stop engaging, at least in our primary addiction. You can't recover and have a Buddhist kind of recovery and have a beer once in a while. That's probably not going to work. So part of our understanding is that we have to become, and part of the second noble truth is we, we need to become aware, we need to have right understanding of what is it that is causing our suffering. What is it? What is it that I react to? What is it that gets me? Well, we need to have some understanding of what that is. And if we, and, and, and then from that place, um, and only from that place, can we start to live in a way that leads uh, to happiness. And so when the Buddha talks about suffering, there's kind of two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to more suffering. And then there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And that's really kind of where addiction falls in. Is that... Is that is that a lot of times, for me, like I can honestly say to some degree, I'm so grateful for the suffering that I experienced as a result of my addiction because without it, I wouldn't have the life that I have now. Nowhere near it. So using tragedy, using addiction, using that suffering as actually the seed or the foundation to build the life that you want to have. So it's not like this regretful, shame-based kind of I'm an addict, bad person thing. It's like, oh, I'm glad I figured this out when I did, so now I have the opportunity. And one thing I will say about, uh, maybe to, to say more about what you mentioned, Patrick, is that people who have addiction progress way quicker in Dharma practice than the average bear because we got a lot of skin in the game. You know what I mean? When you've actually felt and touched the sort of organic, grass-fed suffering of addiction. 
You're just like, fuck this, dude. I'm going to meditate every day. I'm going to go on retreat. I'm doing it. We're happy, well-adjusted people. They kind of kick around, kick tires on this whole thing a little bit more. So, so there's a way in which you can flip the script on that of really having gratitude for the fact that things went down as hard and fast as they did for you because now you actually have this right view moment. You have an understanding of, of what's going to happen if I don't double down on this Dharma business. I know where the unawakened mind goes. I know where this can go. And I respect where this can go. And I'm damn well going to take some insurance against that happening for me. And now... Uh, a lot of people, most of the, my primary students and a lot of the people that I really respect who have taken on the practice are people who have had really, really terrible experiences with addiction and trauma. Um, and so I think that there's a way in which you can reframe that in your mind to have a more sense of intention, maybe have some more gratitude and, and more um, conviction. Right? It's really kind of like Sometimes the Buddha uses this word samvega, which means something like spiritual courage, where you're just like, you're really, really, really going to take this seriously. Because not only do you know where, where it can go, but then you also have this understanding of the possibility of where this could actually lead in terms of being happy and, and, and having a meaningful life. Because I think that's really what this is all about, is how do we have a life that's meaningful to us? based on our values and our sense of purpose. And it's really different for everybody. And this is where Buddhism as a religion is really kind of a, not a good frame. Because if we look at, you know, so, so when we talk about the Eightfold Path, we really, even though the way I just laid it out, it's sort of first noble truth, second noble truth, right view. But really the, the training is meant to be a sila samadhi panya, which means that actually the first act of training that we take on is, is the ethical training, which is sila, which means something like ethics or morality, which is, are both problematic terms. But really what it is, it's a commitment and a conviction to our own values and our, and our own sense of purpose. So it's really, a, it, is, it is and it should be subjective. What's valuable to you and what's valuable to you are probably different and probably should be. So we don't want to get in this, I'm a Buddhist, and what do the Buddhists say about this, and I, I'm just with that list, because that's the Buddhist list on behaving. That's not really, that's a very self-betrayal. It could be a nice guide, but it's really meant to be inside out, and the Buddha always intended it to be this way. So when we think about sila, what we really want to think about is, what are my values, really? And uh, how disciplined am I and adhering to my values through the form of my speech and my behavior and my action and my livelihood. If these are my values and these are my behaviors, they need to be the same, right? Now, that might be different for everybody in the room, and it probably should be different for everybody in the room. And that's what we call cognitive balance. So that's when you start to, that's when the Eightfold Path starts to work for you. Now, we're not even talking about meditation yet. If addiction is a behavior, that means recovery is a behavior. And recovery is not something that happens in the privacy of your meditative experience so much. It really, this is why the newcomer, 
This is why a uh, Buddhist recovery is not always newcomer friendly. Because when we think about Buddhist recovery, the first thing that we think about is meditation, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Almost always people think Buddhist recovery, oh, that's a meditation type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. No, not necessarily. It's actually about behavior. And the first behavior you need to do is to stop drinking and using drugs and you need to stop the addiction behavior first. If you don't do that thing, you can't do any of it. And this is really the Buddha saying this ending, this is sila. If you're engaging in destructive behaviors, forget about meditating. As the, as the teaching says, uh, trying to meditate after a long day of murdering and killing and stealing and burning villages to the ground. <laughs> I'm tired from all that killing today. I need to sit down and do some meditation practice. No, guilt, shame, remorse, guilt, shame, remorse, guilt, shame, remorse. Uh, you know, so the, so the sila is really trying to clean up our behavior, cleaning up our speech, our action, our behavior. That really needs to happen first. That's the foundation. So if we're trying to cross the river of suffering, the first pillar that we need to plant is that of, is that of sila. And like I said earlier, I learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous more so than any other place. Do the right thing. Don't worry about anything else right now. Just don't drink and do the right thing. I did that for like five years, <laughs> you know? And that worked really well. So there's that, there's that, that feel of practice. So we really want to, and, and, and of course, Refuge talks about it, Buddhist Recovery talks about it, but it's more implied. It's not really in the front of the room, and it really should be in the front of the room. It should be kind of numero uno, sila. And is that, is that, well, my intention is to get sober, but you're getting hammered every day. Something's obviously not right. right? So let's help you with that. Uh, and so a commitment to honesty. Uh, and so from a Buddhist perspective, it's a commitment to things like honesty and being truthful with our speech. Uh, you know, not, not taking things that aren't given to us. And that just doesn't just mean material. Sometimes we try to take information from people that they don't want to give us. Or we try to take attention from people that they don't want to give us. We can be demanding on people in ways that are not monetarily or material. You know, somebody doesn't want to tell you something and you're, come on, come on, tell me, tell me. That's taking something that's not freely offered. And then and then this life of, of harmlessness and, and nonviolence, which I think for probably, I would argue everybody here, these are not that hard to get behind. Like, what, I got to give up being violent now? Like, no one's thinking that, right? But, uh, but that's really kind of it. And also, and so that really needs to be cleaned up first. So that's really this kind of our right view, complete view, which is actually understanding and valuing everything that I'm saying. That's part of the right view or samaditi, complete understanding. of like, oh, like, like, I look at the world and I see all this suffering. Do I want to contribute to that? Do I want to be somebody who's adding more to that? Or do I want to be subtracting? Or do I want to at least be ambiguous? That's not that. And I have to also include myself in that equation. Because a lot of people can get in this idea that I got into. One of my addiction, I was like, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. Right? So we also have to include ourselves in that as well. It's like, uh, to be nonviolent and to be benevolent and to be harmless, I also need to make sure that I'm part of that equation. 
And then that's, that's that sila. That's, so that's the right view. That's intention. That's speech. And that's action. That's a, a lot of things. Right? And then, then, now we still haven't even taken a mindful breath yet. Right? <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole lot of stuff right there. And I think that when we're, when, when we're speaking about how do we help the newcomer, this is actually the stuff that we want to be really focusing on. And then once that becomes, the Buddha is saying, once you kind of you know, live a life of, of, of dana sila bhavana, generosity, goodwill, kindness, uh, then you can cultivate the mind uh, by, by effort, concentration, and mindfulness. Or, or, or mindfulness, effort, concentration, how the list goes. We bring awareness. Now we can now that I've uh, done steps one through ten, I can sit quietly with myself and it's not such a horror show in here anymore. <laughs> I'm actually starting to feel good about what I'm doing and how I'm living. And then I, I, bring, I start to develop the four foundations of mindfulness. I continue to practice it, it, the effort, or we could say willingness. Someone mentioned willingness. The, the, the Buddhist sort of equivalent for willingness would be called effort. Am I... Putting, and it's not just effort, it's actually appropriate or right, the right, am I using the right kind of effort to develop these skillful and constructive states of mind and these beautiful states of mind and these beautiful behaviors. It takes effort to be honest. It takes effort to be harmless. So part of our effort is, is going back and continually to live this sila. So if we're going to try to have integrity to our values, it's going to probably take some work to do that. It's going to take some awareness to do that. It's going to take some awareness to see where we're off, where we're not living up to that so much. And then what arises out of that is, so the wisdom comes after all of this. We usually associate wisdom with being the first factor of the Eightfold Path, but it's really actually the end. It's the beginning and the end, but it's more, it's, the, it's, the, it's what we call fruition. It's the analogy of, of a seed to a fruit. Like, so if you have um, uh, a peach seed and you have a delicious ripe peach, how did the seed, what happened for the seed to become the fruit? It took intention and effort and focus and care, constant care, constant attention, constant cultivation, needs to be watered and taken care of and dealt with daily. And if that happens over time, you get this delicious peach. Now, if you take the peach seed and stick it on your shelf with all your other Buddhist books that you're not gonna read, (laughs) and you come back eight months later, what's gonna happen to the peach seed? It's going to be shit. It's going to be a little rock. A hard rock. And so do you want to you know, collect seeds or do you want to eat fruit? You know, that's really what we're talking about here. And, and, that, and that's really the way the Buddha talks about his, the cultivation of the Eightfold Path the bhavana maga, the cultivation of a path. And it's really also, too, this word path is actually problematic because the idea is that we're going to like, there's the eightfold path and we're just going to like, you know, like down the yellow brick road we go. 
it's not like, it's not that fucking well laid out. <laughs> it's more like someone gives you, it's almost like you're coming up to a jungle and someone gives you a machete and goes, there's the path. And you're like, I don't see it. You're like, yeah, we'll start chopping, dude. <laughs> you know, he's like, and you know, two years later, you're like, man, I'm only like 20 feet in. <laughs> That's really what it's actually more like. There's no path. The eightfold path, I don't think so. The eightfold possibility, maybe, if you try. <laughs> it's not that clean. It's not that, like, you know laid out so we, we, we this is why there's a daily maintenance to it and it's just like with, with again this is why the Buddha uses the word cultivate is because if you think about the mind uh, what, what did the Buddha there's a great really great book called What the Buddha Thought uh, which is really a survey of what is what was the cultural upbringing looking at the Buddha's mind through the lens of cultural and anthropology why did he think the ideas that he thought based on the world that he grew up in and he grew up in an agricultural world he grew up in the, in the Ganges River Basin. He grew up on an alluvial plain. He grew up in a time and place where the thriving uh, commerce of the day was agriculture. And he didn't grow up in a big fancy palace like the story did because he didn't have any fancy palaces in ancient India. That, that story is bogus because if you look at factual anthropology, at that time, in that place, in that part of the world, they lived in like maybe, he maybe had a nice mud hut that him and his family lived in. And they were rich, as rich as a mud hut dwelling farmer could be. <laughs> That's about how rich he was. Now, they might have been the richest mud hut farmer dwellers in the land. But there were no palaces and there were no, you know, you've probably seen the story or seen the PBS special. That shit is just is metaphor, allegory, folktale, not true at all. Good story, not true. Uh, and so he knew about seeds and he knew about fruit and he knew about two things I think that's so interesting there's a talk that Stephen Bowser does called the solar Buddha and the Buddha teaches wisdom and compassion right? which is very akin to the sun now he knew that if you had seeds and you had earth and you had water and you had sunlight you would have fruition you would have Nutrition. So he knew about the sun as being light, as the idea of illumination, as the sun allows us to see clearly. Seeing things clearly with mindfulness, with awareness, is a metaphor for the sun. The sun is what allows us to see, allows us to, it allows cultivation to occur. Well, what else does the sun provide? Warmth. The warmth of compassion the warmth of the heart, the warmth of caring. So he grew up in a world where this would have been his worldview. So he, was, he, he, he could see that if, if this is true in agriculture, if this is true in the external world with light and warmth and, and seeds and fruit and cultivation, qualities would arise, well, wouldn't that be true internally? Wouldn't that same science apply towards the mind? Why not? If I cultivate, if I can cultivate peaches, can I cultivate awareness? Can I cultivate loving kindness? Can I cultivate hatred? Can I cultivate jealousy? Can I cultivate envy? 
Sure, why not? If it happens out there, why wouldn't it happen in here? And then that view, that worldview that he, he lived in is what prompted, well, we don't know for sure, but I, I like this story, is what prompted his dharma, his idea that, okay, we need to cultivate happiness from the inside out. And if you want to do that, then you can cultivate these eight factors, this eightfold path, this, this really what I would just call a lifestyle, a lifestyle that's based on the idea of liberation, that sort of third noble truth forward. Fuck the first two noble truths. Yes, there's dukkha, yes, there's crazy. You want to get past that. You don't want the object of your practice to be suffering. You want to get past that one, right? But people get so stuck on these first two noble truths. They're like, what are the 12 links of dependent origination again? It's like, who cares? <laughs> you want to have a nibonic moment. You want to have this understanding of freedom, of, of, of awareness, of the state of mind and body that are in non-reactivity. And from that place, you want to live a lifestyle that is true to your values, to your interests, to your sense of purpose, to what is it that's meaningful to you? What about this world provides you with meaning? Don't just subscribe to some, don't just become a Buddhist for the sake of becoming a Buddhist. Become a, becoming a Buddhist literally just means you're becoming yourself. And you need to respect and to value what's important to you. Why do you like the things that you like? What are important to you? What kind of a life do you want to live? What are your interests? What are your interests? Not what you think other people think you should be interested in. This word that's such a buzzword now, but really this authentic happiness. How do we really maintain a, a sense of truth to what's interesting and meaningful and purposeful to us, regardless of what other people think or what other people think that we should do? That's a lot of, it's hard to do that. Because there's so much pressure and prevailing social norms and family and the world is always telling us what to do and always telling us what we're doing is wrong. And we have to be really careful about the people that we spend our time with. Because people will talk you out of what's important to you really, really quickly if you let them. And so we really, when we think about the Eightfold Path, it's not like we're all trying to adhere to some dogmatic list of things to do. They're, they're guides, you know, it's like that analogy of like, you know, when, they're, when they were traversing the oceans before GPS and all that stuff, and they would use the North Star to guide them, right? So I need to know that the North Star is guiding me to get where I'm going. I'm not going to the North Star. I'm not going to the Eightfold Path. I'm using it as a vehicle to get me to where I'm going. And I might, maybe I don't even know where I'm going. And that's okay too. Maybe I'm a little confused. <laughs> but that's not where we're going. We're using it as a guide to guide our views and our perspectives and our outlook and our attitudes. We're using it to guide our behaviors. We're training our mind to just become a better instrument that's really what the mind is. The mind is an instrument for liberation or an instrument for suffering. 
It's a weapon or a tool. One of the ways that the, the, the Buddha talks about the mind in, in the Abhidharma is this word chitta. Uh, mind, the third foundation of mindfulness is usually described as mindfulness of mind, but in the Pali it's chitta. And one of the ways that the chitta is understood is, is understood the mind is an instrument. And it's an instrument that needs to be developed and utilized for the sake of human flourishing. And so you need to learn how to play it. You need to learn how to use it. You need to learn to understand how it works. And it's an instrument. And like I said, with neuroplasticity, it's not, it's not fixed. It's, it can be, it can, it's an open system. The mind can be, the, mind, the possibilities of the mind are endless. The amount of happiness you can experience is endless. The amount of compassion and gratitude you can experience is endless. The amount of suffering you can experience is endless. So it's kind of cool that it's just this really this open system. But what happens, I think, for a lot of people, uh, this has happened for me time and time again, I could give you numerous painful examples of it, is ways in which I've abandoned myself or I've, imba- I've abandoned what's important to me in the light of some external force that I thought I needed to adhere to. Whether it be a teacher or an organization or Buddhism itself. I, I'll abandon my values and my sense of purpose because I think I need to do what they're saying or what they're doing. And that, that's, a, that's a, a huge betrayal of oneself to do that. And this is where like the whole self thing becomes complicated because AA tells us we're too self-centered. And Buddhism tells us we don't even have one. <laughs> so, well, now what? <laughs> and so really we want to think about the self as, as, as a, uh, there's a teaching called irrigating the field, which again is a nice agricultural perspective where the self is a project that needs to be realized. So seeing yourself as a, you know, and they use this term in AA a lot, I like if I'm a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. You are a work in progress. It's good to be a work in progress. You're not done. Our path isn't finished. My path isn't finished. I don't feel even kind of done. But I'm, I'm trying to see that my life uh, and the way that I live and the way that I relate to the world is, is a project that I'm constantly, constantly working on. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and lots of things go sideways, and lots of things don't work out, and lots of shit I thought was going to happen didn't happen, and lots of thoughts this shit I thought would never happen totally happened twice. <laughs> and so we, we, George Haas, a teacher that I, that I love and respect, talks about his whole program of a meaningful life. How do we have a meaningful life? How do you have a meaningful life based on what's important to you? And the Dharma is probably, I, I have found to be the best vehicle to build and to navigate that. But that's all it is. It's just a vehicle. It's not, uh, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not the end some game. It's not like I just check off, oh, well, I'm a Buddhist now, and then I'm just happily ever after. Now I'm just identified with that, which is insanely not helpful. So this, this is a constant, constant. There's no finish line. There's no yellow ribbon here. And the yellow ribbon is death, right? So like, we don't want to hurry up and get there, do we? <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. 
So uh, I think I'll stop there. Is there anything else I want to say? Um, you know, Buddhism is about happiness. It's not about mm-hmm. suffering. Uh, practicing Dharma and all of this, it's really about having the best life that you possibly can with the conditions that you find yourself in. It's not about the suffering. Um, usually, that, unfortunately, that is an equation. That is part of the equation. But please don't stay there very long. Try to move past that one. And stop thinking there's something wrong with you that needs to be fixed. So, uh, thank you for your attention.